the majority of us. You may never be enough. It may be that in some way, in some area of your life, you felt that the whole of your life. And it may be especially when it comes to God. Because my life and your life, our lives are so messy and so flawed. Whether you're still on the spiritual journey to becoming a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for years, I don't know about you, but I sometimes don't feel like I'll ever be enough. Well, Joshua 9, believe it or not, this interesting chapter about the ultimate April Fool's prank, it's actually especially for messy and flawed people like us. You see, if Joshua, as we've looked at over the last few weeks, if it's primarily a book about Israel's successful conquest of the promised land and its cities, then like Rahab in chapter 5, then this chapter, like that chapter, is really quite unnecessary and unnecessarily long. Which shows us that Joshua isn't just about the conquest, is it? It's about stuff like this. It's about the Rahabs. It's about the Gibeons. Therefore, it's about you and me in all of our messiness to give us hope. So if you've ever not felt like you're enough, never felt like you would ever be enough for God, then today is going to be especially important to you. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, we pray that you would, through the words of this interesting account of the Gibeonites, show us every single heart here how you love messy people. Invite us to come as we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Outlines are in the app as well as uh, on the screen. So let's go. How did Israel get into this mess? Um, the chapter opens with two groups of Israel's enemies hearing. All right, that's the, the, the dominant uh, verb, hearing. So what they heard, just to give you a bit of context. So last week we saw how one man and his family sin, Achan sin, nearly shipwrecked this whole campaign of Israel. But after they finally found out who the person was who did the wrong thing, Achan, they fixed it up. So that was the end of chapter 7. We didn't look at chapter 8, and we're not going to look at it today, but in chapter 8, they again try to take on the city of Ai. Now this time, they're successful because they repented, they fixed up the wrong thing. Ai is actually taken in a remarkable victory. So a few chapters ago, Jericho was taken um, by a miracle, walls tumbling down. Ai, quite differently, was taken because of a perfectly executed military strategy. But both, whether it's miraculous or a strategy, they're both from God. And the message is that if you obey God, heaven's resources are with you. So that's what happened. Now, in chapter 9, verse 1, which we read, uh, the kings in the remaining cities of Canaan, the promised land, hear about this, and they band together to fight Israel. Now, we won't pick up their story again until chapter 10. But, in contrast, the people of Gibeon, uh, which consists of three or four cities, they also hear, but they do something vastly differently, right? Um, This chapter picks up their story and what follows. So, uh, Gibeon acted. So, have a look again. That's... Uh, Keep your Bibles open. I won't have those passages on the screen, but if you have your app and your Bibles open, you can follow. So verse 3, however, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse 
They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We've come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. A bit of geography. Gibeon is a city about 10 kilometers from Jerusalem. Um, and it's really the next set of cities in their conquest. Now, we find out in chapter 10, Gibeon was actually really well fortified. They had a lot of good fighting men. They were stronger than Jericho and Ai. But here's the thing. When they hear about what Israel did, they don't count on their own strength to stick around and defend their city. They don't join the alliance with the other kings. They don't run away in fear. They could have done all that. Somehow, and we don't know how, Somehow they know Israel's playbook. They know Israel's strategy. They know that Israel had been commanded to completely destroy, and a couple of weeks ago you remember the word is harem, completely destroy the cities of the Canaanites. However, they also know Israel could negotiate for peace with the cities outside of the promised land. Now we don't have time to read it, but you find that out in Deuteronomy 20, 10 to 20. Now Gibeon geographically, was one of those Canaanite cities. They were close. But ethnically, we read in verse 7, they were called Hivites. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, again, Israel's playbook of the cities they could treaty with, the cities they had to destroy. Guess what? 20 verse 16, Deuteronomy, one of the Canaanite peoples marked by God for judgment in Harem were specifically the Hivites. So you see, whether geographically or ethnically, there's no way that Gibeon qualified for being spared, okay? So they came up with this plan to trick Israel, and it worked. So look at verse 9. They answered, verse 9, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. Now, it's very clever when they said, we heard about you and the, your God. They, did, they didn't mention Jericho. They didn't mention Ai, because if they were a distant country, how would they have known? So clever, right? And what did they do there? They appealed to Israel's pride. They stroked Israel's ego. They humbled themselves. They talked up Israel and their God. Again, if you want to manipulate someone, this is the way to do it. Let's keep reading verse 11. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm and we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. What a great sob story, right? And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals were worn out by a very long journey. They were appealing to Israel's very own sense of having wandered in the desert for 40 years. And of course, words aren't enough. So, you know, they're saying, here, look at the physical evidence, the tangible evidence. And then this is what happens. Verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Okay, Israel were deceived. But not only were they deceived, it wasn't just that, you know, this April Fool's prank was pulled on them and ha-ha, ha-ha. Sorry if you watch The Simpsons. You know, they got fooled. 
they were actually in grave danger. Why were they in grave danger? Because they had broken, in, in ratifying this treaty, they had broken their treaty with God. Let me show you a few verses from that playbook from Deuteronomy 20. It says this, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. Harem, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. These are promises in their covenant, their treaty with God, that ironically they just renewed. The verses at the end of chapter 8, which we didn't read, just before this episode, they renewed their covenant with the Lord. They just renewed these very things, and then next moment, they've just broken it. Now, they were in danger. Remember, God had said, obey me when it comes to these harem commands, or you yourself will become harem. That's what we looked at last week with Achan. Now, of course, the most damning words are in verse 14, right? They did not inquire of the Lord. Out of their pride and self-reliance, they completely kept God out of the equation. Oh, we can handle this ourselves. Surely God is already on our side. Well, they forgot the lesson, remember, a few weeks ago about the holiness of God, that God is ultimately on God's side. So they completely neglect to even inquire of their God. Now, I hope you see that Israel's mistake here is not so hard to understand for us, is it? I mean, how many times has this happened in your life and my life? That we make huge life decisions, don't we? Education, job, career, kids, church, big purchases, big changes, relationships. How many times in our self-reliance we just sideline God in our decision-making. Or we do the prayer thing, but we totally shortcut the way that God guides us normally through prayer. So we pray, but come on, we've been there, right? It's just a tick the box. I've done it. Because really, if we're honest with ourselves, we had already decided anyway. And because we had already decided before we prayed, after we pray, you kind of feel at peace, Right? I mean, why wouldn't you feel at peace if you already decided? And then we take that as God's confirmation. Have you done that before? Well, guess what? That is not how seeking and inquiring of the Lord works. Can I just hear say, prayer and inner peace is a really bad way of making decisions. Right? It's used by so many Christians to justify sinful and unwise choices. I've prayed. I've got inner peace. I'm just going to go and do it. Confirmation from God, therefore. That's not how inquiring of the Lord works. Can I give you some better steps? Have a think about this instead. Begin with prayer before you've made a decision. Begin with prayer. Humbly ask for wisdom and God to help you. Because you need it. Secondly, then look at Scripture. Look at the Bible. Is this a decision that the Bible's clear about? The Bible's clear about the right and wrong things. The Bible's also clear about the wise and unwise things. Something might be, right, not wrong, but it's actually unwise. Have you looked at Scripture? 
Thirdly, examine your own heart. Because our hearts are going to be biased. That's why the inner peace thing doesn't work. Because you're going to feel peace about stuff that you're already biased towards anyway, right? So examine your heart. How might your selfish desires, your heart idols, be swaying your decision? Number four, ask for advice from other Christians, especially your leaders and pastors. Because often they'll be able to show you, hey, um, I just want to politely quite, uh, point out that maybe you've already decided based on your heart. And maybe you're, you're blinded to the fact that you're already biased towards that decision. Can I just point that out to you? Like, ask for advice. And then when you've done all that, make a decision. Right? Don't be stuck in inaction. Sometimes not deciding is the worst decision. If you've done all that, right, you're going to have to choose. So make a choice. And then number six, pray and trust. Right? Pray that God will be honored by that decision and trust Him no matter what the outcome. Okay, this isn't the Bible, but this is a biblical way, a much better way, isn't it, of inquiring of the Lord rather than I prayed and I feel inner peace, therefore I'm just going to go and do it. All right? All right, let's keep going. The rest of the chapter, um, we read it, we won't look at it in detail, but very quickly, um, verse 16, you know the story. Three days later, the truth comes out. Um, now Israel hears about it, so it's their turn to hear and then act. But of course, what can they do? Their hands are tied. They made an oath to spare the Gibeonites. That, I mean, that was disobedient and sinful, but they, you, you don't compound sin by adding more sin. All right, So they can't break the oath, so they have to follow through on their vow. Uh, so Gibeon, uh, the Gibeonites are spared, but they are uh, under a curse. And it's actually not that bad of a curse, but, you know, there will remain lowly servants for Israel for generations to come, woodcutters, water carriers, um, their menial tasks. Um, water carriers, especially in that society, were usually reserved for the women. So I guess this was their opportunity to, to bring a bit of shame on them. That was the curse. It's not actually that bad of a curse. If you think about it, they're spared. They're not karem. That's pretty good. All right. And, and that's the end of the chapter. So what do we make of this? What do we make of it? Well, I just want to point out what I said right at the beginning. It is a messy chapter, isn't it? It's messy in that no one comes out looking good. I mean, the Gibeonites who are deceptive, they don't look good. Israel, who are deceived and disobedient, they certainly don't look good. It's a messy chapter with messy characters. But here's the thing. Surprisingly, and maybe not so surprisingly, if you actually read the Bible, God is right in the midst of of the mess. And that's my second point. See, when we ask, where is God in this mess? We start seeing the gold of this chapter. Firstly, the Gibeonites in this chapter, well, they're actually presented as neither good or bad. It's, it's interesting. They're presented as messy blend of both good and bad. All right? Ticks and crosses. So, you know, big tick for hearing and fearing what was come to them. That, that's, that's to their credit. Um, big tick for not joining the alliance of the other kings to stand against God. Uh, what about the deception? Well, you expect it to be a cross, but it's actually neither a tick nor a cross. Um, in verse 4, it says they resorted to a ruse. Now, that's not a, a word you hear often in the English language, but it's not a bad translation um, because the word used in the original is not entirely negative, okay? Right? The word deception is pretty much always negative, and that's why they decided to translate it as a ruse, 
right? Because it can mean something negative, but it can also mean positive things in other contexts, like being shrewd or being clever, all right? It's neither here nor there, is the point. But even with the two and a half ticks, um, the thing we're to realize is clearly Gibeon is not Rahab. You remember Rahab, right, back in chapter 5? I'm sorry, back in chapter 2? Their reasons in verse 24 is not like Rahab's kind of full confession of faith in the God of Israel. So look at verse 24 again. When they come and say, why? This is what they say. They answer Joshua, verse 24, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all of its inhabitants before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that's why we did this. All right, if you compare that with Rahab's words of why Rahab decided to risk her life, this is not the same, not even in the same ballpark. They were clearly just afraid and they wanted to save their own skins. But, and here's the amazing thing, but even with all of that messiness, half faith even, even with all of that, they are spared. Now I want you to notice verse 24 that I just read. Your servants were clearly told. How were they told? I mean, who told them? Like, it's, it's a mystery, right? How did these foreigners somehow know Israel's playbook? By the way, I keep using the word playbook. If you don't know what playbook means, it's a sporting term, you know, sporting strategy. The coach um, would often have a playbook. These are your kind of things that you had to do. Anyway, that's, that's what I mean, okay? How did they know Israel's playbook? In Deuteronomy 20, like they didn't have the Bible. How did they know? How did they know that Israel was allowed to make a treaty, treaty with distant cities, but not Canaanites? How, how did they know down to that level of specifics? Well, the answer is we don't know, right? The passage does not tell us how they were clearly told, who told them. But I think that's one of those subtle hints in the Bible. We can only guess. And I reckon it's one of those times where you know that in the sovereignty and in the mercy of God, it could only be because somehow God, directly or indirectly, God had told them. Which means that God intended them to be saved. God wanted them to be saved in all the messy ways that He saved them. Now what do you call that? Right? They deserve to be destroyed along with all the other nations. All the other cities, but they somehow were clearly told. You... That's grace, isn't it? That's God giving us what we don't deserve. And then when you look on a long enough timeline, you will see that they were more than just spared. Um, did you notice where they would be serving as woodcutters and water carriers, these menial jobs? The last verse says, 27, That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Where is the altar of the Lord going to be at the place the Lord would choose? That eventually is the very temple of God. The very place where God would dwell among his people. You know, it's the very place where if you were an ordinary Israelite, you couldn't access only one tribe and the priests of that tribe 
could go and serve at the altar of the Lord, at the temple of God. Because it's the very place that God would dwell. In Psalm 84, a famous psalm, it says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather be a woodcutter and a water carrier in the house of God than anywhere else in the world. And do you see that astonishingly, this wicked nation, this deceptive nation, would permanently serve at the house of God, right in the heart of that house, the altar. That's grace. And though they weren't then and there incorporated in Israel like Rahab was, remember, they didn't have Rahab's faith. But you know what? A bit later on in the Bible, a few hundred years later, I want you to see this promise from God. This is what God promises in Ezekiel 47 regarding all of the foreign nations that live among Israel, including the Gibeonites. Ezekiel is told, you are to allot it, this is the new land that he prophesies about, as an inheritance for your, you yourselves and for the foreigners residing among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Along with you, they are to be an allotted inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe a foreigner resides, there you are to give them their inheritance, declares the Sovereign Lord. God will give Gibeon in all of their messiness and give them everything. Everything that his own people are entitled to, they will be entitled to one day in spite of it all. That was God's promise in Ezekiel. You get that, right? That is good news, isn't it? Not just for Gibeon, it's good news for you and me. See what God is saying to them? And this is what God is saying to you today. Come as you are. Come as you are. You don't need to be good enough. You may never have set foot in a church until today or picked up a Bible. You may have messed up so badly in your life. You may have mountains and mountains of regret. God says, come as you are. Because I love to welcome those exactly like you. God loves the Zacchaeuses, the Samaritans, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They're the people that Jesus spent his time with. God loves to give the last-minute laborers exactly the same wage as those who worked at the beginning of the day. If you know the parable, you know what I mean. That's called grace. So will you? If this is you... If you hear God saying that to you today, will you come to Him? But it's not just deceptive Gibeon, is it? It's foolish Israel. They acted impulsively, foolishly, disobediently. They're a total mess as well. And yet, God continues to work His plan through them and with them. He didn't abandon them. Last week we saw when Achan sinned, He doesn't abandon them now. And this kind of thing would keep happening uh, both before and after in Israel's history, if you know a bit of the Old Testament. Remember when Abraham took matters into his own hands and decided to have a child with Hagar, his servant? Remember when Jacob takes things into his own hands, 
to steal the blessing from his brother and basically trick his way into life. Remember later on when Israel would demand a human king in rejection of God? In every one of those messy situations, God would still persist with his people. And again, I wonder if you hear yourself in that situation. You see, you may be a follower of Jesus as a Christian, but you see how much you keep messing up since you've become a Christian. And you wonder, does this mean that I'm cursed? I'm out of God's will for my life. I've totally missed out on plan A for my life. I've got to live out plan B, C, or D. Maybe you married an unbeliever, even though God is clear that he wants his children to marry in the faith. Maybe you've messed up in your marriage, and now you're separated or divorced. Or maybe you've messed up your relationship with your parents or your children. Maybe you've made such bad choices, and you're paying the price for those choices. Addiction, financial ruin, physical or mental illness because of your choices. Even then, God wants to say to you, Child, I am still here for you in your mess. Now, it's important that we learn from Israel that this isn't an excuse to just sin it up and let God sort it out, or God is going to accept me anyway, whatever. Now, you notice Israel, they did one thing right, okay, just one. They didn't compound a mistake with more mistakes. Right? They had to live with the consequences of their rash vow, but they knew they needed to keep that vow. See, God has reached into your mess, and He's promising to stay with you, no matter what. Right? But now that you know that, you need to repent and do whatever is right in this situation. No matter how messy, no matter how, how many wrongs you've done until this point, you need to decide to do the right thing now. And trust that God will work out everything for your good and glory in spite of it. All right? Don't compound sin with more sin. Don't take God's grace for granted. All right? But know that no matter how messy, He never gives up, He never lets up. I'm going to get the band to come up. We're going to sing in a moment. But you might ask, why? Why, why is God so gracious? So good to Gibeon, to Israel, to you, to me, whether you're not a Christian yet and you're messed up, whether you're a Christian, you've messed up. Why? I'll tell you the reason. It's because of the power of promise. See, here's the thing. If even a rash vow taken in God's name must be honored, then how much more so the vow that God himself takes in his own name? Do you got that? If even the rash vow has to be honored, how much more so the vows that God himself makes. Israel's rash promise meant salvation for a doomed nation. How much more so God's faithful, not rash, thought through generations long promise. How much more so is that going to come through for you and me and the world? And you see that in uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Have a look at the screen. It talks about the promises of God. It's talking about the, the promise of God to Abraham on the basis of which we're saved, by the way. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Keep going. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear, to the heirs of what was promised, 
He confirmed it with an oath. It's saying God didn't need to promise and then also swear. He didn't need to, but he wanted to make it more sure, so he did. So verse 18, God did this so that the heirs, so that, sorry, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of this hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. See what it's saying there? The two unchangeable things, he already made a promise, but he also made an oath by his name. He swore by his own name. He didn't have to, but he wanted to make sure that we, right, who are waiting for his promises, when we're still waiting for all the promises of God to come true, right, that we would be absolutely sure if God can't lie with even just one of the two things, but if he did the two things, guess what? He really won't lie. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Right, lots there. But you see what it's saying. It all hinges on Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is the substance of God's promise and his oath. Which means if you've taken refuge in Jesus who died for you, who rose again for you, however messy you are, as long as you are in Jesus, God will take you there in the end. But you say to me, hang on, hang on. I'm in Jesus, but I'm barely hanging by a thread. My faith is so weak. It's so messy. It's so sinful. How do I know I'm going to get there in the end? Because I, I don't feel like I'm good enough. Well, let me give you an illustration. Two people get on a plane. One person has flown thousands of times before, right? They're confident. They, in fact, they love planes. They want to sit right by the window. They want to see those flaps go up and down. They want to see the engine. They want to feel the exhilaration of the plane taking off. They want to see everything because they're confident. They're not nervous. But then the second person is the opposite. They're terrified of flying, never flown before. They barely get on the plane. They're so nervous. They have to sit somewhere in the middle, definitely not by a window seat. They have to maybe even take a couple of you know, tranquilizers. Tranquilizers is pretty strong. Take a couple of pills so they don't freak out. They're gripping on takeoff and landing. They're gripping so hard, right? Their seats in front of them, any little jolt, and they're in that position. Now, let me ask you, of those two people, which one of them makes it to their destination? You know the answer, right? Both. As long as you're on that plane, it doesn't matter if your faith is strong or your faith is weak. As long as you're on that plane, you're going to make it. That's the promise of God. You may feel like I'm never going to be good enough. I'm so messy. It doesn't. Are you in Jesus? Is He your Lord and Savior? Whether you've had a messy past, you've got a messy present, if you belong to Jesus, your future is secure no matter what. Why? Because God made a promise. He swore it by his own name and because he is holy and because he is faithful, he will keep it and you will get there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the secure promise of God. No matter how messy or messed up we are, I pray that we will know that as long as we are in you, we are safe. So who do you need to speak to today particularly? Who do you need to encourage? I don't know, but you know, Lord. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will do that. Amen. Let's see.